Welcome to the Relentless Minds podcast with Lori Jimenez, a platform where influential entrepreneurs get real and share their stories of challenges in life that they've had to face head on and conquer in order to be where they are today. Here, you'll get an inside look at the adversities that these individuals have experienced or are currently dealing with, in addition to their opinions on real life matters and philosophies in life. Most importantly, you'll learn what it takes to have a relentless mind so that you too can stay headstrong in your pursuit of a better future. In this podcast, you're going to get 100% authenticity from people that have figured out how to beat the noise that society creates and have a higher level of self-mastery. Hi, welcome back to my podcast, Relentless Minds. Today I have with me Sam Anthony Lucania. Sam is an inspirational speaker who passionately shares his story of his struggles with drugs, alcohol, depression, anxiety, and suicidal behavior. He has reached thousands of individuals, including high school and college students, healthcare professionals, and government officials to motivate and educate them on the importance of self-awareness and asking for help. Sam, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Lori. It's always a pleasure. (laughs) Well, Sam, so I kind of wanted to start it off with asking, I know that you're a public speaker and your mission is to inspire others. Can you tell us more about that and what your focus in life is right now? So my main mission in life is if I can go out into the world and reach one student, one mother, one law enforcement officer, one healthcare, but anybody that might be struggling and allow them to hear my experience and learn from it and learn from my pain and struggles so they don't have to experience their own, that's my mission. Mm -hmm. I love that. And so take us back. Tell us about how this all started and why you made the decision that the world needed to hear your story? So I started writing my story in 2015. I got arrested for breaking and entering in 2015. And I have struggled with substance abuse since I was 12 years old when I took my first drink. Uh, Mm -hmm. Started smoking cigarettes at 13, weed at 14, prescription pills at 16, cocaine at 19, full-blown alcoholic, a fifth a day of vodka by the time I was 22 years old and then a very nasty habit of mixing liquor and pills Mm. all throughout my 20s into my 30s. And my disease got the best of me in 2015, and I went into somebody's home uninvited, and I took her pills. And I got arrested for two counts of breaking and entering, and I thought I was going to jail for a very long time, so I figured a good way to keep busy would be just to kind of write my testimony. Let's write it out and see where it goes. And then what happened from there was uh, I spent a little bit of time in jail and part of the book was written while I was locked up. It took me two years from start to finish. And then once I finished it, I submitted it to the publisher and it was going to be about eight months before I actually had something in my hand. So mm. I, I didn't know, I didn't know what to do. All that writing, all that editing was keeping me busy. And then I was like, well, where do I go from here? So I felt like God was kind of leading me and saying, dude, you need to go share your story. This is too good just to put it in a book. Like you need to go out and reach somebody else. Well, I didn't know how to do that. So I went where you go most days, you know, most times when you have a question these days, when you have, I went to Facebook. So I was like, hey, you know, I want to go share my story in the schools. Who can help me out? And, you know, I have a saying, is it odd or is it God? And 2006, I got arrested for prescription fraud. And I went to an outpatient program and I had a counselor whose name was Jen. Now, 10 years later, I saw Jen on social media and we had a bunch of mutual friends. So I friended her. Well, 10 years later, I posted, I want to share my story in the schools. Who can help me out? Guess who saw it? Jen. 
She was no longer a counselor. She was actually the director of student assistance services for all of the county schools that I live in. And she was like, hey, we're doing a presentation in a couple of weeks. Why don't you come and share your story? I was wow. like, okay, cool. Like, what is this, a health class, a PE class? She said, no, it's all the juniors and seniors. So the very first time I ever grabbed the mic and stood in front of an audience, it was in front of 800 of the most critical people on earth, yeah. teenagers. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I shared my, a little bit of my story with them. And, uh, you know, I walked out of there on the best high that I ever had in my life. And I didn't know how, I didn't know where, and I didn't know when, but I just knew that's what I had to do. So I continued to speak. And, uh, you know, I just kept doing it anywhere, anytime. And I had never been so passionate about something. I was willing to do it for free. So I figured, you know what? I really need to find a way to keep the lights on in my house and do this at the same time. And I've been doing it ever since. And it's the most rewarding thing I've ever done in my entire life. I love that. You're coming from a position of value and inspiring and changing people's lives. And I think when anybody taps into that and that love for other people, I mean, that's they really figure out the, the fuel to that fire that they have within themselves. Yeah. And my value comes from pain and we all have that. Yeah. And if you look at the tagline on all of my emails and on my business card, it says gratefully turning my mess into a message, mm -hmm. you exactly. know, and, and that's what I'm doing. I'm taking the worst, darkest, nastiest parts of my life. The, you know, the, the pieces that nobody wants to post on social media about exactly. and I'm standing on the street corner and saying, Hey, this is who I am but this is what I've done with it. Exactly. And that, that's the most important part. Exactly. And I love that because it's like you're exposing, you're being vulnerable, but you're also finding the strength in that and you're sharing that strength. But what I wanted to actually bring up also is that back, you started when you were 12 years old. Let's peer into that. Like what was going on in your life where you felt like you needed to resort to drinking alcohol and like, you know, there was something going on there. I was full of anxiety. Everything made me anxious. Waking up, going to school, talking to girls, talking to anybody. I had no social skills because they didn't teach that thing in the classroom and it wasn't being taught to me at home. Uh, mm -hmm. I was getting bullied. I'd get picked on because of the clothes that I wore. I was a scrawny, scrawny little boy. Like I had no athletic ability. I wasn't valedictorian. I wasn't wow. smart. I wasn't cool. I wasn't handsome. And uh, I was very insecure. You know, I like to say that I don't know what you thought about me, but I was always really concerned with what I thought you thought about me until I took that drink. When I took that drink, all those feelings went away. Gotcha. And that's why I did it because I just, it wasn't about going up or going down. It wasn't about getting really high or getting really low. I just didn't want to feel the way I was feeling. Mm, that was your and, escape. And taking a drink took that away from me mm. temporarily. Temporarily. And that's the problem. Exactly. Yeah. And did anybody know that you were going through this? No, I like to say that, no, I like to say there's two kinds of parents. The first parent says that, you know, there's no way my kid's the one that's struggling. My kid's not depressed. My kid's not getting bullied. My kid's not going to try drugs. The other parent just has no idea. And I honestly believe that my parents fit equally into both categories. They had, they never thought not for one second that sweet, innocent little Sammy was going to go down into the liquor cabinet and take a drink when I was 12 years old. Yeah. But after I did, they had no idea. And if they did, they had no idea how to deal with it. Because they don't teach that thing in Parenting 101. Mm -mm. No, I don't think any parent would really think that a 12-year-old would be interested in that or be experiencing so much pain internally that they would find that as a, as a resource. I've spoken to thousands of students between the ages of 12 and 18 years old. You'd be amazed at how hurt. And, and how much pain some of these kids are nowadays from the pressure to succeed, 
from the lack of support at home to poor influence some older siblings and peers. Uh, I mean, they've got it harder today than I ever did, especially with social media, man. Social media is killing these kids. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like, what have you experienced? Like, what are they feeling due to the social media influences? It's comparing your insides to other people's outsides all the time. I mean, mm. I talk about this in my presentation from the stage, and I've actually got some really good examples mm. that I use from my own life. And think about what are we looking at when we're looking at social media? It's everybody's highlight reel. It's exactly. everything that people are throwing up. So you have this perception of how my life, how good my life really is. But that's not always reality. Mm -hmm. You know, we scroll through and we see that selfie of that person that looks so beautiful. The picture has a hundred likes, but what we don't see is behind the scenes. It took them 37 different tries to get that photo with 20 different filters and just the right hashtag. So they could feel a little bit better about themselves and make you feel worse. Ugh. And, you know, and then I actually put up a picture. It's me and my wife. We're standing on an island. There's palm trees. We have coconut drink in our hand. Pretty girl, sunshine. It's perfect. The perfect setting. Like, who, if you saw that picture, it's like, oh my gosh, I want to be there too. The next picture I show them is my mugshot because I got arrested the day after I got back from that vacation from taking that lady's pills. What you don't see wow. in that picture of us standing on the island is my anxiety, my depression, mm -hmm. the fact that I relapsed, my addiction. Mm -hmm that even though I was standing on an island with a beautiful girl and a drink in my hand, I was spiritually bankrupt inside. Mm. Yeah, and even, even the turmoil, because that's, when you're there and people are like, oh wow, goal relationship type of picture, right? Mm -hmm. but I'm sure all of this was affecting your relationship severely. Oh, um, my wife is a rock. I mean, it, from the outside looking in, just hearing our story from start to finish, she could have left me a number of times. But because of our faith and because of our love, mm -hmm. was it an option? Yes. Was it a consideration? Never. I would be dead literally and figuratively if not for that woman. Oh, God, that's amazing. And so she was there always throughout this whole process. What was the point where you were like, let's go back a little bit because I know that you overdosed. Mm-hmm. Because she found your me. journey, your whole journey here, I mean, you've had your highs, you've had your lows. And what were the highlights there of like what you can really kind of just bring out to us about how bad this got? So what happened with my overdose was sometimes the people that are closest to you don't even see it. You know, and a good example of this is my father. My father was a paramedic for 20 years of his life. He picked up, you know, overdoses off the streets in Newark, New Jersey and stuff like that all the time. Mm -hmm. He didn't even see it in his own son because he was too mm -hmm. close to the problem. And that was kind of the problem with my wife. She knew I was drinking a little bit. She knew I was taking some pills. She never thought it was that bad. Like I wasn't trying to kill myself that night. I was just trying to get right before my wife got home. And this night I just missed the mark. Now, for somebody that suffers from substance use disorder, or some people might know it as addiction or alcoholism, whatever you want to refer to it as, for me, missing the mark could mean a couple of things. It could mean that I didn't drink enough or take enough before she got home, and once she got there, I can't do what I want to do, so now I'm going to be restless, irritable, and discontent for the rest of the night. In this case, I missed the mark. I took too much, and I ended up overdose. She came home and found me on the floor, unresponsive and unconscious. She had to give me CPR. Medics showed mm. up, two doses of Narcan, and I woke up 18 hours later in the ICU with a tube down my throat wow. because that's what the disease does to you. And then after that, I got the help that I so desperately needed. I got into counseling. I got into 12-step recovery. We got into the church. I started working out, taking care of myself. Like Things got really good. Things got so good that I thought that everything that happened in the past was just all circumstantial. Certainly, I'm not that bad. 
And as I slowly started getting away from the things that were keeping me sober one day at a time, I was getting closer and closer to a drink, drink or a drug. Wow. So, and this, this point where it was like you were, I guess, recovering from that overdose and you were trying to get your life together. How many years was this into your struggle? So I overdosed on January 18, 2013. So that was six years ago. I was 31 years old when I overdosed. And um, this whole I, process started when you were 12. Yeah, I took my first drink when I was 12. I showed up to my first meeting of 12-step recovery in 2004. So when I was about 23, 24 years old. And then I was just constantly in and out of the program, relapsing, struggling, trying to find an easier, softer way. They say that there's only three places for an alcoholic or an addict. Locked up, covered up, or sobered up. That's it. Mm -hmm. And I've been two and a half. I've been, I've been behind bars. I've been sober, and I had one foot in the grave. And I can tell you 100% of the time, being sober 24 hours at a time is the easier, softer way. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. What was the point where you, you had had enough, where you said you need to make a change? Because that's a lot of struggle for yourself, for your loved ones. You know, when was it that you had to just stop? Uh, after the arrest in 2015, and the reason I say that is the overdose was bad. It really was. And I remember I would read the hospital report and I would see things like uh, the patient is critical, patients in respiratory distress. Oh and, and I used to read those things thinking that, well, if I keep reading this, it's going to keep me sober. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. that wasn't the case. My favorite line in the big book, which is the, uh, basically the playbook for Alcoholics Anonymous, says this. It says that we will not remember the pain and suffering of a week or a month ago. And mm -hmm. a year into my recovery, I didn't remember what the intubation tube tasted like when I woke up choking on it in the ICU. So what happened with my relapse between then and that arrest was that relapse was actually a lot, a lot more mental. Now, I have a physical allergy when it comes to drugs and alcohol. I just I can't take it. Like, I can't take pills as prescribed. It says take mm -hmm. one to two every four to six. I'm taking four to six every one to two. Like, I just can't follow directions. It's terrible. Oh, you know, okay. once I take one drink, I can't tell you with any certainty when I'm going to take my next one or when I'm going to take my last one. It's usually when I end up in handcuffs or in the hospital. Jeez. So there's this mental side and that's the mental side of it. Like once it's in me, I can't control it. But the worst part about it is, and somebody said this to me a long time ago, and it's the first time that I was ever finally able to compare. And this person said this, if you knew how I felt when I wasn't drinking and using drugs, you wouldn't ask me why I did it. And some of the worst decisions I've made have actually been when I was not under the influence. I won't say sober, because sober means that you're working a spiritual program of action. I just wasn't under the influence. I went into that lady's house completely not under the influence of anything. But my mind, that mental side of the disease said that the only thing that's going to get you right right now is on the other side of that door. And then when I did that, and I found out that the cops were on their way to my house to arrest me in front of my wife, that was it. I just threw my hands up in complete defeat because I'm not that guy. I'm not a criminal. I don't go into people's houses, but that's how far down the disease had brought me. And I had, that was, that was the lowest point in my life right there. I would say even worse than waking up in the ICU. Wow. Why was that worse than waking up in the ICU? Cause I don't remember that. I remember, I, 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 I don't like, I remember waking up, but I, I don't remember what kind of transpired before before that because exactly. I was in such a drunken super and under the influence of so many pills and alcohol. Mm. I don't remember what happened that night. Like I That's... remember I started drinking, I took some pills and then before next thing I knew I woke up choking on a tube. Gotcha. And that's why you were reading 
those transcripts of what was occurring because you were trying to trigger that pain point. Yeah. Where it was strong enough where you would stop. Yeah. And that's why gotcha. I, I, lo I, lo I, I love my book so much because my wife actually co-authored it. And there's several times throughout the wow. book, you're going to hear from the wife of an addict. So you're going to hear my story to where it says that I remember drinking and it goes black. And then you hear everything from her from the time where she left work and I didn't answer the phone to waiting in the waiting rooms with the doctors telling her, we don't know if your husband's going to wake up. Wow. And so she that stuff's important to me. Oh, that's super important. That's important yeah. for everybody because then it's like a lot of people that go through, you know, addictions, um, even people that try to take their life, like they don't necessarily know how it's impacting the other person, the people that love them, right? And so in this case, she was able to express that, like what she was experiencing and what she was feeling while you were dealing with your own internal turmoil. Yeah. And addiction is the one disease that affects people that don't even have it. And the reason that I wanted her to co-author it and share her experiences is that so that people that read it can understand that not only can the individual, but the family can recover too. Mm. Like our family, our love, our relationship, everything that we built should be destroyed because of this disease, but it's mm. not. It's made it stronger. The family can recover and we want to be that example. We want to be that power couple that when you see us on social media, you know it's real. You know we're not just paying lip service. Like when you see me and my family on social media, that's real. We've already put it all out there. I'm not saying my life is perfect. My We still have problems. My yep. life's not all sunshine and rainbows, mm -hmm. but we know how to deal with those problems. And if we've made it this far, there's nothing that's going to tear us apart. Nothing. I think that people can connect to that even more. Like people that are dealing, and this is, that's why it's so important for you to put that out there. And that's why I love that, you know, being on this podcast, going out and sharing your message, being on as many platforms as possible. I mean, I see that. I see all of your attempts to be, to put your message out there as much as possible. Because when you do that, people like of all age ranges, because you, that's the thing, you were dealing with this for so many years. You were dealing with it when you were 12, when you were 15, when you were 19, when you're 20s, you know? So people in different walks of life are able to connect with you because they know your story and they see your struggle and they see at the end how you came out. So they're like, it's possible, you know? And that's why for me that, that vulnerability and that just like openness to express that the bad in addition to the good allows people to connect with that. And it makes more of an impact. Yeah. And I love being that beacon of light and giving somebody just a little bit of hope when they feel like there's nothing else left. And whether it's walking into a high school and it's a 16 year old kid or I'm walking into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and it's some husband that thinks he's about to lose his wife or it's going mm -hmm. into a jail and talking to an inmate and saying, dude, I've been there too. Like, yeah. I love the fact that I could relate to so many different people because guess what? Addiction doesn't discriminate from Yale to jail, from Park Avenue to Park Bench. I don't care what religion, what your social status is, what side of town you're from, how many push-ups you did that morning. It don't matter. It doesn't care. And mm -hmm. I, like the, I love the fact that that's the one commonality that I can have anywhere I go. And I talk to people that are struggling with this. So do you feel that, you know, despite the journey that you've had to go through, the pain that you've had to go through, do you still consider this sort of experience like a blessing in a way? Absolutely. I mean, I had a counselor used to say to me all the time, she would say, mm. Sam, if you could see God's path for you, you probably wouldn't walk it. 
And mm-hmm. dude, she was a hundred percent right about that. Cause if God would have came to me in 2015 and said, hey, dude, Sam, you're going to relapse. You're going to break into somebody's house. You're going to steal her pills. Then you're going to go to jail while you're in jail. Your wife is going to go ahead and have a miscarriage. You're going to lose your baby. And then you know, all this terrible stuff's going to happen. But guess what? Once you come out on the other side of that, you're going to be speaking from the stage in front of thousands of people and changing lives. Would you be okay with that? I would have looked for a detour. Yeah. I would have looked for a detour. Mm. But it's his path, not mine. Exactly. But at the end of it, he's used you to serve such a bigger purpose. Absolutely. That's beautiful about it. Yeah. Because you're, I know you're Christian, right? Do you feel, you feel like your, your faith has helped you at all to stay clean throughout this journey? Yes. So I have to have what I call the Holy Trinity. I have to have my spiritual fitness, my mental fitness, and my physical fitness. My spiritual fitness is my religion, and that's being a Christian, going to church. But more importantly, how am I acting outside of church? Mm. My mental fitness is 12-step recovery. That's going to meetings, going into the jails, uh, working with other sponsees, working with my sponsor, things like that. And then my physical fitness is actually taking care of myself. Mm. I've tried just having one of them. Like I'm like, oh, I'm so involved in the church. I don't need the other things relapse oh man hey so going so good i don't need to work out i don't need to go to church relapse i have to have all three all the time every day Mm -hmm. so that's now your ritual it it has to be your daily ritual what i do what i do today to stay in recovery is the same thing that i'm gonna have to do today tomorrow and the next day to stay in recovery wow that's amazing that's good and that's good for people to know i wanted to ask you because I feel that like constantly throughout this, from what I've, I've been seeing about like the content that you're putting out there and even on this conversation today is that you've established, or maybe you've always had this, right? But it was this self-awareness of what was going on inside of you, or maybe you developed it later, but can you tell me about how maybe even this played a potential part in your recovery? I wouldn't say I ever really had self-awareness. I was always so insecure and unsure of myself. Like I would lie to you just to get you to like me. Mm. Like I, I had no, if 10 years ago, if you would have asked me my name, I would have stuttered. I mm. had no confidence, no social skills. If you would have asked me who I am, I wouldn't have been able to answer that. I didn't like myself. I didn't like anybody else. And I was actually listening to something and reading the other day and trying to come up with some new content. And the next thing I want to say, is there's so many people that are so eager to get acceptance and approval from somebody else. Mm. And my question to myself had to be, Sam, do you even love yourself? How do you, what's your relationship with you? How do you feel about yourself? Are you calm? Well, guess what? If you don't like yourself, why would anybody else like you? I had to deal with that first. I had to get comfortable in my own skin. I had to understand that what somebody else thinks about me is none of my business. Mm. Once I was able to get past that huge barrier, I have all the confidence in the world now. See, and that's the thing. So many people experience that it's like this fear of rejection, right? This need to be accepted and wanted and it's paralyzing and it's incredible. And that's the thing. It's like with society nowadays and social media, when it's constantly presenting this form of perfection, it's like, this is the standard now. If I'm any lower than that, then nobody's going to want to be my friend. Nobody's going to like me. Nobody's going to listen to me. I'm an outcast. How did you get over that? So it was just like reflection, like this, this fear that you had of, of not being accepted. 
So the best advice that I ever got is what I just said. What's somebody else's, what somebody else thinks about you is none of your business. Mm. And then I love the way Les Brown said, he said, somebody else's opinion of you doesn't have to be your reality. And I had allowed other people's opinions of me to dictate how I felt about myself my entire life. Other people's opinions dictated where I went, who I hung out with, the way I walked, the clothes I wore, the places that I, I would frequent, like it dictated everything. Once I stopped worrying about that and just started worrying about what I actually want and not what I thought was cool or popular or socially acceptable. Dude, you know how hard it is to walk into the room and be the only person without a cocktail in your hand? Mm. You want to talk about standing out and not fitting in? Try going to any social event nowadays and being the only person in the middle of that crowd without a drink in your hand. And you want to talk about being socially awkward. But the funny thing is, I honestly feel in that situation... I'm the only one that's really comfortable from the outside looking in. We walk into a bar and a a room full of people with drinks in their hand. And the perception is that, man, they're all having such a great time. But my question is this, what if the reality is that all of them, their personality is just kind of the personality and the way they feel about themselves is so unremarkable that they're not comfortable until they have that first drink. Exactly. What if if that's the reality? That is a reality. A lot of people use drinking as a social lubricant. Like Mm -hmm. they they cannot socialize with people and be themselves if they're not, if they don't drink and then they take it the next step and they get drunk, you know? And our our kids see that because that's the culture now. Oh gosh. Our kids, it's, it's when the baby wines, mommy wines, it's baby's juice, it's mommy's juice, it's painting and wine, it's cooking Mm. and wine, it's winery on the weekends. And guess what? Your kids growing up at four, six, eight, ten 10 years old, see that. And all of a sudden it's like, well, wait a second. I I, I had a long day too. Yeah. Where's my wine? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And to kind of speak to that though, if I want to kind of switch it in a different light, Okay. So like as entrepreneurs, right, I'll go out and I'll go to an event and let's say I have an early start the next morning. I don't want to drink, you know, I need to be on top of my game tomorrow. And so that's my reason for not drinking. And it's kind of, it's exactly what you said. It's like, why, like, I don't care what you're thinking about me. Like I've got this bigger mission tomorrow where you're not involved in it, right? And I've still Mm got to perform. So why am I going to care about what you have to say now or think now when tomorrow it doesn't matter, but hey, I sabotaged myself, right? And the reality is nobody cares if you're drinking. Nobody, we walk into a room and the assumption is it's all eyes on us. Oh my God, everybody's going to be looking at me. Dude, no, they're not. Everybody's too busy thinking about themselves. Yeah. Nobody cares what you're doing. They really don't. And even if they do care, it's like, why does that matter? It shouldn't. Right? It shouldn't Not one matter. bit. It shouldn't matter because they have no, inf- they have, there's really no, nothing that they're contributing to your life. Not one right? bit. Yeah. No, Just I because that. you're not comfortable doesn't mean I don't have to be comfortable. Exactly. No. And that's the thing. It's like, you've got to be, you've got to be, and it requires like a skill set even to develop that, like you, that mental toughness, that mental strength. But that's why you've, you've got to work on it. And eventually it's like you get to a point where you're so secure in yourself that it's not easily influenced by what other people are saying or thinking or not, you know, you can't even know what they're thinking, but what they say, what, how they act. Um, yeah. And it's a craft just like anything else. It doesn't, I don't want to make it sound like I stopped drinking on the next day I walked out and I was social Joe. Like, no, it didn't happen that way at all. 
But over time, putting myself in situations and getting comfortable and going up and talking is just practice. People have no social skills and they don't know how to interact and look somebody in the eye when they're talking. Like these kids come up to me afterwards and ask questions and they're so drawn in, their eyes are facing the floor, they're mumbling, they're whispering, like they just can't stand up tall and look somebody in the eye and ask a question because nobody taught them how to do that. They have no confidence. Mm -hmm. And that didn't come overnight. That took time. That took practice. But now I'm at a point where I showed up at a hotel in Atlantic City where I know absolutely no one. The first thing I did was go to my room. I put my stuff down. I got my business cards. And I went right down to the conference and just started walking around with a smile on my face introducing myself to people. Exactly. That didn't come overnight. That took a lot of work and practice and intention and, you know, things like that. So. And that's what I've had. And I've had that before where a friend would be like, how are you so confident? And you know, you're so social. And I will tell them it's been developed. It's like those sayings of I'm a, it's the extrovert. What is that? An introvert, extrovert, something like that. Mm-hmm. I, <laughs> got, I got one that we use in recovery. I'm an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. Inferiority complex? <laughs> I'm, an e- I'm an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. Oh my goodness. Explain that one. <laughs> So for me, I always walked around like I was, when I was drinking, it's like, oh yeah, you know, I'm a big shot, this and that. But deep down inside, I, I was, I knew I was this big. Mm. I knew I was small time. It's so small I was dog. ego. Yeah. I was an egomaniac. Like I thought I was big time, but deep down inside, I knew I was inferior. Mm. Mm. And that's always, that's tough. And that's even more like internal conflict. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's battling, it's battling with your own demons. But uh, lately I've been so on top of my physical game, my mental game and my spiritual game. All attempts from the enemy have just been unimpressive. Mm. And so tell us about that because sure you're still an occasion, like you've got to always watch yourself. Right. And are you still currently watch myself how to, to not necessarily be expose yourself to certain risks or, or environments where so like relapse for relapse, like, are you still feeling like you might get triggered at times? No, because I'm proactive instead of reactive. Gotcha. And so a good example of that is I have a network, I have a bunch of mentors in my life. And these Mm -hmm. are just men that have things that I want. And when I say have things I want, I'm not talking about their car, their clothes, Mm -hmm. they live their life in a manner that I respect. And that, you know, I look up to them and I know they're going to give it to me like it is. They're not going to sugarcoat anything and tell me everything's going to be okay. They're okay with hurting my feelings. Mm. And so I sent out a group text message and I said, Hey fellas, guess what? I'm going to Atlantic city by myself on Thursday. Uh, if I call you Thursday night, I need to talk. I want you to answer the phone. Um, I made, I made a specific intention appointment at eight o'clock to get on a podcast with Lori Jimenez. So I wasn't sitting in my hotel room at 8.30 thinking that going downstairs to the casino might be a good idea. I am very proactive about my recovery. Staying sober is the most important thing in my life right now. It's more important than my wife, more important than my son, more important than my son that's on the way. Because if I put those things before my sobriety, I will lose it every Mm. time. That's so important. That's so strong to say. Because... I don't think many people would see it that way necessarily, but when you put it at that height, there's nothing was, that's going to get in the way. I was told that if I put sobriety first, everything that comes second will be first class. Hmm. Mm. And it will, you'll never drop the ball on it. No, no. But if I put anything before my recovery, I'm going to lose it. So you don't, yeah. And so you don't, so the question isn't necessarily what do you do when you get triggered? It's more so like how are you avoiding even getting to that point 
where you have to react now, right? Yeah, and, and you know, again, I have ways of re removing myself from certain situations. So I'll give you a good example. So um, right after I got out of jail, I was very high performer at my job. I finished first place in my position and I got invited to go to Cancun on their annual team building convention, which I was like, okay, cool. Now this was an all-inclusive trip. My mm -hmm. wife was going, a bunch of my teammates knew that I was in recovery and I didn't drink and stuff like that. We get off the bus, we pull up to the hotel. What's the first thing everybody does? Go drinking. Of course, they run, literally <laughs> ran into the bar because they're so uncomfortable and they're socializing with people that they've never met. I better go get that social lubricant, right? So, so for a split second, I found myself not wanting to drink, but looking at myself at that crowd, thinking to myself, why can't I go do that? Now, if I would have stood there and entertained that idea and maybe worked my way into that crowd, maybe I make a bad call and I take a drink. But what I did is I removed myself from that situation and I called up one of my mentors and he answered the phone. He said, Sam, let me ask you something. You have every right to feel the way that you feel, but why are you there? Why are you in Cancun? I was like, well, I finished number one in my position. He's like, that's right. Would that have happened if you were drinking? I, I said, no, you're right. He's like, let me ask you this question. If you start drinking now, do you think they're going to invite you back? <laughs> <laughs> all right, good talk. And literally, that's all it took was a 30-second phone call for oh, me God. to get out of my own head because I've told that my mind is a dangerous place for me to travel alone. Mm. So when I get up there, I just need to make sure that I invite somebody else to the party. And guess what? I made it through that rest of vacation, that rest of that, uh, that convention with no problems whatsoever. No problem. But I have systems in place. There's never, I'm never going to put myself in a sit. I'm not going to go to a frat party and get dropped. I'm not going to get dropped off at a frat party because I know what goes on there. There's mm -hmm. no happy ending for me in that situation. So why would I even do it in the first place? Well, exactly. Why would you, know? you even do that? And, and I think the value in, in that last part also that you were talking about was this, the systems that you have in place. You have a lot of help around you. You have a lot of help. You needed though to go look for that help. Yeah, and it's been there since day one. It's been there from the day that I decided I'm done. I've had enough. I cannot, the way that I'm living is killing me and I need help. And the last school that I was at, I allowed the students to text in anonymous questions. And mm -hmm. I received over a hundred text messages from these kids. And I have to admit the questions that they asked broke my heart. I spent about three or four hours filtering through all these questions, giving them thoughtful responses, and then putting them in a place on my website where they can go get the answers. And one of the girl asked me this. She said, what do you do now that you've got the help that you needed when you still feel down on yourself or you're getting depressed? And without thinking twice about it, my response was this. What makes you assume that I walked away from my help? Hmm. Plain and simple. Why was that the assumption? I never walked away from it. It's working. Everyone is a failure alone. Nobody is a success by themselves. Yeah, exactly. And that's why it's important. I think that, you know, to everybody that's listening to this, it's important to emphasize that, that it's okay to need help. And it's super, super important to go look at it if you're trying to take this next step seriously, where you get yourself into a better position and into a higher quality of life. Yeah. And that goes with anything. I say that help is the dirtiest four letter word that I've ever known. It's the one thing that everybody wants to offer, but nobody wants to ask for because it makes us feel weak. Mm -hmm. Whether it's you're struggling with addiction, you're struggling in your marriage, you're struggling with your finances, you're looking to start a business. It's okay to seek help in those areas of your life so you can get it going. Nobody's ever done it by themselves. Nobody. Nobody's done it by themselves. And I'm even seeing that now with everything that I'm venturing into. It's like the mentors, the coaches, like so important. It's so important. Even just to give you 
like you said, like you had that one conversation where they were like, make you question things, or they even give you some validation or some confirmation of what you're already thinking. You know, it's super important to have that guidance and have that support throughout life. Yeah, I love that. And actually, so you mentioned that all of these students that were sending you anonymous questions. That's, that's amazing, by the way. And I'm so happy that you provided that for them. I want for everybody listening and, you know, with kids even, you know, what would you say, because since you were at that age and you were going through all of this, what are some of these signs that parents should be aware of when it comes to their kids potentially being at risk? So, you know, your kid better than anybody else. Now, this also only all, kind of counteracts what I said before, that the people that are closest to you often miss it. So I like to say that there's a lot of pain hidden behind the response, I'm fine. Mm. You know, my parents, every time they asked me how I was doing, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And anybody that's married knows that is not an actual response. You know, you had a long <laughs> yeah. day at work, you came home, your spouse was like, hey, honey, how was your day? I'm fine. Exactly. You know good and well you're not fine. Like, uh -oh. an automated defense mechanism that means I had a lousy day. I don't want to talk about it. Leave me alone. Mm. But we can't leave it at that. Mm. So I'm fine is not an answer. We need to get to the root cause of the problem. And if and when you catch your kid with something, whether it's a jewel or a pill or marijuana, you stop them dead in their tracks. Don't get mad about it. Because one of the biggest things that I hear from kids is, how do I get my parents' trust back after I messed up? So don't get mad about it. Just talk about it. But don't set it aside. You know, I, I see a lot of parents that are afraid to talk about these things or seek help because of the stigma. Well, I don't want to tell anybody that my kid's suffering from depression because I don't want them to be labeled. I don't want my kid to be the one that's getting treatment for addiction because they might not get into a good college. Mm. I got news for you. If your kid's depressed and addicted to drugs, what does it matter what college they get into? Yeah. Yeah, don't, you want to make don't. sure they get to that point. Yeah, and you don't have to do it alone. That's the, like, we all try to keep things behind those four walls. Like, oh, I caught my kid with a pill. I don't know what to do, so I'm just not going to do anything at all. No, you've got counselors at your school. You've got, probably got somebody else on your block that's been through it. Go mm -hmm. talk to them. It's okay. You don't, yeah. have to, you don't have to shell up and be afraid to uh, you know, bring these things up, but look at your kid's behavior. You know, yeah. Is there an influx of money? Is there an outflux of money? Because exactly. you can either make money selling drugs or they cost a lot of money if they're, you know, little things like that. Are they constantly isolating? Mm. You know, is there extreme weight gain, extreme weight loss? Is there odd activity? Like, dude, why does my kid every three days run outside of the house for three minutes and then come right back? Like I used to do. It's just little things like that, but you have to be aware of them. And a lot of times our parents are so busy, they're working, their heads are buried in their phones. They don't even see any of them. That's gold. Awareness. Parents need to be aware of their kids, not only that, but they need to instill in their kids the fact that they're approachable. Like, hey, yeah. you can come to me. I won't get mad at you. Establish that so that their child can, like, because that was important. Like, if they, they feel like their, their parent is going to get mad, because everybody makes mistakes, you know? If they were to go and they were to get drunk or if they were to smoke marijuana, they do it one time and they feel like they're a horrible person. And then they feel like they can't, now they can't approach their parent anymore. But I think it's so important to establish that or to normalize that in a way where it's like, it's, it happens and it's okay, but I need you to be safe and careful moving forward. So I need you to communicate this with me. And a lot of parents are naive. 
don't wait. It's not if your kid's going to get introduced to drugs. It's when your kid's going to get introduced to drugs. And when it happens, I suggest it happens in a safe, controlled environment where they feel comfortable asking difficult questions. Mm. So talk to them young and use teachable moments. If you're watching a TV show and Mm. somebody, you know, there's a suicide or somebody overdoses on the TV show, talk to them. Do you know what that means? What, What are your feelings about that? Like have open conversations when you see, don't bury it or change the channel. Talk about it because they're going to see it. If your kid has a screen, they're going to see it. Yep. Can you imagine if the kid, if the parent is watching TV, let's say that's the child. And this is like awareness thing again. Let's say that the child did do something like get involved in drugs. And then the parent is watching TV and then on the TV, someone is doing drugs and they react. Oh, that's so horrible. I hate that. Oh, that's Mm -hmm. disgusting. Like, can you imagine how the kid would, and that's the thing. It's like scary because you kind of have to always assume you never know, you know, mm-hmm. you never know. So it's always being careful about those reactions. And like you, Absolutely. Said, like you said, it's bringing that up in a constructive manner as opposed to destructive. Yeah. Don't yell. There's no point in yelling. That's not going to fix anything. What's done is done. But yeah, it don't brush it under the rug. It needs to be talked about and it needs to be talked about soon. Love it. So I have a final question for you. Okay. And my question is, for the ones that are listening that potentially, you know, could be getting a lot more out of this content than maybe some other ones that are listening. What resources are available for people that could be dealing with drug abuse and alcohol abuse? So there's tons of resources. I actually have a resource uh, tab on my website. So if you go to Sam Anthony speaks forward slash resources, there's several resources there. Uh, One of the cool ones on there is actually the addiction resource center. The addiction resource center has several different tabs. So are you struggling with addiction? Are you the loved one of somebody struggling with addiction? Do you have a kid that's struggling with addiction? And then mm-hmm. from there, you can go, what are you looking for? And I'll break it down by state. Then by state, it breaks it down by county. Okay, what is it that you need? Do you need a psychologist? Do you need an inpatient program? Do you need an outpatient program? Are you looking for medica- medication-assisted treatment? So that's a really, really good resource. The AA, NA's on there. There's a couple of local resources. I'm in Virginia, like the Ryan Bartell Foundation and the Chris Atwood Foundation, uh, both great nonprofits that I support. So th- there's a lot of good stuff out there. And um, you know, I would definitely start there. Perfect. Thank you so much. That's amazing. So kind of review your contact information for anybody who wants to reach out, potentially, you know, ask you a question or even to get you to speak at an event at a school, you know, at, at, a, at a job center or, you know, other events that you like to participate in. Contact information for Sam is his email, which is sam at samanthonyspeaks.com. His website which he mentioned, samanthonyspeaks.com, which you can find additional resources for help. And also his Facebook and his Instagram, which the Instagram is sam underscore anthony underscore speaks. So Sam, thank you so much for being here today. I truly, truly appreciate the time and the value that you brought onto this podcast today. It was my pleasure, Lori. Thank you for having me. And anybody's always welcome to reach out to me. If you or a loved one are struggling, if I don't have the answers to the questions that you're asking, I will help you find somebody that does. Perfect. And to the rest of my listeners, thank you so much for being here. Until next time. That concludes this episode. If you enjoyed it, feel inspired, and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Relentless Minds podcast via the link in the show notes or visit LoriJimenez.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.